are interviewing Tisa Lowen. So welcome to the podcast, Tisa. How are you? Good. Fine. How are you? We are good. Looks like you have a nice um, COVID prevention covering on your microphone there. <laughs> yeah. This is my pop boom. I like it. Yeah, welcome. So how are things in Arizona right now with, with COVID? I know for a while they were spiking really heavily. It's been in the news less, so I'm kind of curious what's been going on there. Well, things have gone down, way down, way, way down since July. Actually, it was uh, really bad in July and the beginning of August. For the most part, when you go out, uh, most people are wearing masks and social distancing, at least that I interact with. I, I think ASU is being really careful. There are issues. I don't live in Tempe, so the people that live in Tempe have different concerns, understandably, with 100,000 people being brought into their town from all over the country. But since ASU has its own testing protocol and access to its own tests and it can do something like 16,000 a day and we can get a test mm -hmm. whenever we want. And for the most part, most people never have to be on campus. How long have you all been back in the semester? Almost a month. Oh, wow. So I guess you and I kind of started Similarly, we started August 10th at Notre Dame. So Tisa, uh, I, I told Kara, switching gears a little bit, I told Kara that you and I met when you were, I think you were wrapping up your, your undergrad at New Paltz. And since then, you've gone on to NYU, now you're Arizona State. And on the podcast, we always try to cover the spectrum of where folks are. We talk mm -hmm. to grad students, we talk to people who are mid-career, and we talk to senior and trying to, trying to give a sense of how everything's put together, you know? Obviously, the title of it says it all, like how the sausage of science is made. So tell us about you and how you got into anthropology and what your, your path has been like so far. We're gonna start when I was a, a wee lad. Start at the cooling of the earth, that's better. <laughs> no, that's okay, that's good, that's good. I'm just being facetious. I think I'm funny. So I grew up in a really religious family and there's also a military family. So we moved around a lot and I was able to work on a bunch of volunteer construction mission type trips as a young teenager. And through that uh, ability to go to different places and meet new people, I had a pretty young age developed the understanding of the concepts of cultural relativism and an understanding of non-Western centric ideals pretty early. That naturally led me in the direction of anthropology more generally. And that's actually partially what I went to college for the first time I went to college. But as I got older and as life happened, I started to appreciate the colonial project that was some of the work that I was involved in and or at least the legacy of the work that I was involved in. So I was disillusioned by that path and dropped out of college shortly thereafter and worked for 10 years. Right around the time when the economic collapse happened, I was considering going back to school. I started stumbling on YouTube videos educational YouTube videos. Was, and this was around the time when like TED Talks were just starting to be really cool. And for the first time, I learned what 
evolution was. It was something that I wasn't allowed to learn about in school. As per my parents, that was pulled out of classes. And finally, for the first time, I understand that evolution happens by natural selection and monkeys don't turn into people. And I know my reaction to learning that the first time, and I'm kind of curious what your reaction was to, to learning about evolution and natural selection for that first time. Absolute awe and mm. just wow. Appreciation for the simplicity of it and yet how powerful the explanation was. One of the concepts that just totally blew my mind was uh, the fact that when we see things that are far away in space, that you know, light takes a certain amount of time to get to us. And therefore, simply by the fact that we can see something means that we're looking into the past. That just blew my mind because that's, that's something we see every single day and really ignited a lot of curiosity in me and a lot of thirst to learn more and sort of a, a passion that I've been running off of since then. I always find that interesting when I hear somewhat similar upbringings of like, what was your first exposure? And then how did that hit you? Like there's some people it's, it's, it's shocking and, and jarring. Uh, it seems like for you and I, it was shocking and jarring, but in a very positive way. I just am curious, so you were on a, in an online anthropology course where were you i was at home <laughs> where was home <laughs> new jersey okay so uh, how did you get to new well uh i'm from new jersey but i predominantly lived uh i mean in my early childhood we moved all around we lived in puerto rico we lived all over um but then finally when things settled down a little bit it's mostly been new jersey pennsylvania new york so, so a combination of those three essentially sort of We'll say, now, now, mind you, I lived in those places, so I know we have people all over the socioeconomic spectrum. And right down this, the road from New Paltz is uh, two Bruderhof communes that I live right next door to, which are Anabaptist conservative sects. So I know there's a lot of variation there. Nevertheless, New Paltz is like Portlandia East. It's like the <laughs> vortex of progressive liberalness in the Northeast. So... I'm kind of curious that you were shielded from evolution and yet your family seems to have put you right in a, in a place to be more exposed to progressive. So I'm an adult by then. I'm living on my own. This gotcha. is, my family lives in Pennsylvania. Uh, well, half of my family lives in Pennsylvania now. So I struck off on my own long before that. Gotcha. And I brought myself to New Paltz. I love New Paltz. I miss New York. I, I I love Arizona too, but man. Especially right now, the fall. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. So that's what you mm -hmm. meant, Ken Nystrom then. Yeah. Yep. I remember I remember Ken when he had a dwarf beard. Do you remember that? Did you ever <laughs> did, he, did he have the braided beard? <laughs> I've seen pictures. I <laughs> we, we when I was still a student, <laughs> we Googled him. Because you, you Google all your professors. And uh, he, his mummy days came up and there was like a picture. He was in a video or something and there was like a picture of him sitting next to a mummy. And he had, he looked like a 90s surfer with the braided goatee. Yeah. That's what he had when I met him. I love that look. I was telling Kara, <laughs> she was like, you, you envied it, didn't you? I'm like, I did. <laughs> right. So I'm going to get us back on track just a little bit. And so... This this is this is the the split role Chris and I have. He he goes wandering off, and I bring us back onto the path. So you started back into college online, and then you decided to pursue anthropology, both in a master's and now a PhD. 
so what led you to want to pursue that higher education and, and furthering it on into the PhD realm? It was all step by step. It was not, you know, when I first started, it was, I'm going to finish this certificate. I'm going to finish mm. this two-year degree. I'm going to finish this four-year degree. Uh, and then sort of fate, luck, and a little bit of, and, and some passion, and then uh, some gatekeepers too. So, and I, and I mean the good kind of gatekeepers, not the bad kind. When I was at New Paltz, that very last semester, I was applying to NYU and a bunch of people visited and I was able to meet different people that were at NYU, but one of them particularly introduced me to Susan Anton who's at the time the president of the AAPA and soon to be the department chair at the uh, anthropology department at NYU. Mm. Uh, many people know that Susan does a lot of work in diversity and inclusion in biological anthropology. And I didn't know that. And I just, you know, interviewed with her. But really what was happening behind the scenes was that the people I was meeting was directing, were directing me to the right people. Right, right. And... Mm -hmm. In fact, they accepted me into the program. They sent an email that I did not receive. And a few weeks went by and I thought that was that, that was fun. Now it's time to go out and get a job. I just thought, let me just check in and make sure Susan's like, yeah, no, we sent you an email, you know, three weeks ago or whatever. Welcome. Note did you ever find out? Note to graduate. Did you ever find out like, like where did the email go? <laughs> like, oh, what people. happened? <laughs> well that's horrifying <laughs> uh yeah you know it was just i'm sure if it had gone a little bit longer they would have you know tried to get in touch with me another way but oh, it was so exciting just the, the opportunity to be a part of that program and to go to nyu which at the time i, I didn't really understand was an elite private university. It's better not to know that going in, right? I thought <laughs> it was a part of the CUNY or the SUNY system. <laughs> uh, I just thought they have a skeletal biology program. This is awesome. This is exactly yeah. what I want. Mm -hmm. And later on, you know, swept into this elite world that was really foreign to me. That was interesting. And then leaving that world, no offense to Arizona, but, you know, Arizona State mm. is just is not a part of that world. And, you know, there's good, good things about that as well. So going into that world and coming out of that world was really interesting, too. Then I was sold. I was like, this is what I want to do. This is for me. I'm a part of this. I'm 100% in. So I very much treated my master's like the first two years of my PhD. So let's talk about that master's a little bit. So you have this wonderful picture of Croatia in your background right now. And you, you study kind of pre and post Romanization in Iron Age Croatia, correct? Or you did for your master's? I did work in Croatia, but it was a little bit different. The way I got to Croatia was, so this is bringing us back to Ken. I had graduated from SUNY New Paltz and was, you know, one of my professors there and I knew him from that. And he, he, probably the reason why I'm a bioarchaeologist, honestly, it's the first time I ever heard that word was when he said it, the first time I heard him present, the first time I ever saw him was when he was presenting a colloquium about the uh, African-American burial ground in Newburgh, New York, and, and revealing their stories, and I was amazed. It was the perfect combination of biocultural that I've been looking for, and very much of a four-field curriculum is arguing this culture-science dichotomy that I don't believe or buy into at all. 
And so when I heard this biocultural approach, I was sold. And so fast forward, I'm working on my master's and I'm looking for a collection to work with. And, and Ken's going to Croatia to work uh, with a colleague there. And I'm like, can I come? And he was like, sure. All right. And Never hurts so, to ask. <laughs> Lesson, always ask. <laughs> and so uh, I went and they had a field school going on. I was adjacent to that. I wasn't really a part of that, but I was hanging out with them. And their work was also very different than mine. They were excavating. I was working with an already excavated necropolis. And that was a commingled fragmentary necropolis that they just didn't really know how to approach analyzing. There aren't that, or at least at the time, particularly, there weren't that many bioarchaeologists in Croatia. And so I took to that for my master's. But about that, people were telling me that the individuals that had lived there were, first of all, not, not their ancestors, that there was this uh, history where the Slavic people had come in and settled after the Romans. And there, there's this interesting part of the history where they're not really sure who was there. And on top of that, there were these people there before the Romans. And there's gaps in our knowledge about how those crossover events happened. And that was really interesting to me. And that was something I was attracted to, but unable to answer with that collection or look at, you know, at the particular time. So that's sort of what I'm doing now, actually. And uh, yeah, we can talk more about that too. So, so, what, so what led you to Arizona then? And was it that project or have you circled back around to that now that you're at Arizona or how did that happen? I was very fortunate that I got into every school I applied to. I did not expect to though. And so I applied to many schools <laughs> and uh, that was one of the most emotionally wrenching experiences of my career so far. Actually, it was really uh, upsetting and difficult because I turned down a lot of funding at other schools. Yeah, it was it was not fun. But what attracted me to ASU specifically is my advisor, Krista Janowski. And I knew that uh, there were great advisors and mentors at the other schools. But the things that attracted me to those schools were location, the history of the school, or the fact that I had funding. But Chris's work is what attracted me to here. And I knew that that was, he was the best fit for me. And I knew that that was really what was going to be the best, the, the best reason to pick a program. That's something I think a lot of people forget when they're applying to graduate schools that the program can be great, but you're really applying to work with a person. And if it doesn't work out with that person, it's not going to work out well in that program. And so I think that's really wonderful advice to, to folks who are listening that are thinking of applying to grad school this coming uh, go around. I know you, you have more to say about what you're doing there in the program and your research, but I want to sort of put a pin in something else you said earlier, which is the, the interest in science or the biology and the culture coming together. We didn't pitch this to you as a Hackademics episode, which is our Hacks for Succeeding in Academia series, but you're really a great example of the kind of story we're trying to elicit from folks. And I wonder if you could speak to this. So you were at NYU where you were shepherded towards Susan Anton, whose advocacy hand is strong. And now you're at Arizona State, where there are a number of people we have talked to and worked with whose public engagement hand hands are also strong. And you, you are 
extraordinarily active on Twitter and part of a group who are bringing the resources, uh, the work of Black anthropologists to the fore. So I wonder if you could speak to how all of those hats are being, you are integrating all of those roles and hats and handling everything. So. so what I can say is that the things that I care about, my research, my service interests, the things that I put in my time and effort into all stem from my positionality and my life experiences. And that sounds like, duh, obvious, but there are people out there who would not say that, you know, their science is neutral and their objective or whatever. And that that's just not the case. I have a very specific way of looking at things, having worked out there in the quote real world and a college dropout that didn't know what evolution was for 10 years, not expecting to come back to this world. So everything really is guided by my my experiences, but also what I learn as I go. So I didn't come in having even the same priorities necessarily. I've had great mentors who have showed me uh, there's a lot of issues in academia we're all aware of. I didn't know about those issues coming in. I was naive. And having great people like Susan, other people like Rachel Watkins, who have been wonderful in helping guide me and and then making me want to do that for the next person. So that this endeavor, yeah, this endeavor is about me being a professor someday, hopefully. Who knows? We'll see. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I am I am a scholar right now. I am leaving my legacy right now. And my life is affecting other people's lives and their lives are affecting me. And that is happening every day already. It, that doesn't start happening after I have a PhD. Perfect way to phrase that. I love that. So often PhD students are kind of like prevented from doing that because advisors will be like, no, you need to get your research done and focus on this. And I think you've taken a very balanced approach, which so many people appreciate. Can I just follow up on that really quick? Less with a question than just with a sort of sharing. And I like the way you, and I, I apologize for putting you on the spot, but I kind of knew a little bit of this. And so I wanted you to say it and you said it well, but as someone who also dropped out of college and came back, maybe just getting having a shiny CV to become an academic wasn't the top of the list. And so when people kept steering me away from outreach and service, I kept going like, but that's what I want to do. That's the part that makes the research fun and exciting is sharing it. I don't know if there's any of that in you also. There is that, but also I, I do admit that it, at least in this part of my career, I had a I had to make a choice. So Chris, my my advisor doesn't work in Croatia. <laughs> Our match is methodological and theoretical, and he is the guide that I needed to ask the questions I want to ask. But deciding to continue to work in Croatia was not an easy decision because part of me wanted to ask other questions that are a little bit closer to home. However, some of those some of those questions are difficult to engage with every single day when they're really personal. And so I decided to remove myself a little bit. Instead of studying myself, I'm studying people in the past that had experiences that were similar, perhaps similar to mine, that I can then extrapolate lessons from. So one thing this is off a bit of what Chris is talking about and, you know, perhaps what you're, you're, you're bringing up here as well, but you've done, you've been a part of a couple of things that are fairly recent. 
which is Black and Bioanth and the uh, Anthro Illustrated. Both of these you've had help in founding these, which is, you know, a big effort. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit about how these two things came about and how people can get involved as well. Yeah. So uh, let's start with uh, Black and Bioanth. So Black and Bioanth is a fairly recent sort of a combination of a community building social media project that is a platform to increase networking between an awareness of Black biological anthropologists. And it was started by a bunch of actually separate groups that were sort of working independently, separate efforts that recently came together. And then this was born. So first of all, I'm mixed. My mom's black. My mom's African-American. My dad is a German immigrant. He's from Germany. And coming into particularly the master's program with Susan and with her emphasis on diversity efforts, she really helped uh, me and the other students really become aware of how bad representation is in biological anthropology. Dr. Fuentes and Antonio Mohi had done a paper, not numerous papers, but particularly one a few years ago where they um, had compared the percentage of people of color in biological anthropology, but specifically Black biological anthropologists, and the numbers had actually gone down. And that was really upsetting for me and and just shocking. Honestly, I was shocked and it really bothered me. So when I got my first chance to teach my last year at NYU, I also taught at Brooklyn College as an adjunct. And I wanted to uh, make a syllabus that, you know, had a diversity of people in it, but who to pick from (laughs) where there's only, you know, 3% of biological anthropologists. First of all, who are these people and how do I find their work? So I started this little internal list of everyone that I knew and it wasn't a lot of people at all. And in the end, it, it was somewhat helpful, but actually I had to really draw from outside of anthropology to diversify that syllabus. And during that project, decided to really, no, can I really name everybody? Can I? Can I? Is Unfortunately, that effort seemed to be possible. And, uh, and therefore, I wanted to provide some kind of resource where other people could find these individuals' references as well, so that they could diversify their syllabi or whatever they're working on their research. And so I started a bibliography. Fast forward almost three years later, I, multiple times I went back and revisited that list and worked on it. And then, it, you know, it would sit for a few months. But this last spring, a lot of, you know, a lot of things happened. And then specifically COVID happened and then the murder of George Floyd and all of the events of the summer and Black Lives Matter really made me want to highlight this effort and and really, first of all, add to it new people who had come into the discipline, new PhDs, and, and it's not only PhDs, it's also master's students, and pretty much anyone that has a publication in our discipline that they themselves identify as Black and a biological anthropologist, and get that out there. People were looking for resources, and I had this, And I thought, this is the time. And gratefully, it did take off. And it's been shared in over a thousand emails. And it's been on blogs. And that's great. That's a great start. Um, And recently, I have gotten some help from Dr. Danae Reed. 
to actually turn that list into a true database and house it on a website mm. and not right. just a Google sheet. And so we can build it and keep track. All right. So that was most of that was my efforts. And then also, unbeknownst to me, there's this other group of mostly professionals or professors, excuse me, and individuals that were also talking behind the scenes more, more recently over the summer that were thinking about using their influence and experience to create some kind of networking and endeavor. And besides those individuals, there's a group of NYSEP students, Dagmui, Megan, um, Dagmui, Megan, and Amber at uh, NYSEP in New York, uh, part of the CUNY system, started talking about how they didn't know that many Black biological anthropologists and how they wanted to find a way to help people find each other just to build that community. And so Dagmui messages me on Twitter and is like, well, I know that you have this list. Do you know people that might be interested in being involved in this? Do I know people? I know everybody. I don't really, I don't really know everybody. <laughs> they don't know who I am, <laughs> but I know who they are. So I reach out to a bunch of different people that have, like they're rockstar anthropologists who have uh, strength in social media and have done their own efforts in other ways. You know, an individual that was doing a group on Facebook and someone that had a website, someone that had a blog. And then through word of mouth, it got to this group of professors over here that are sort of working on something that I don't want to, I don't want to speak about for them. And so then we all got to meet together. And that was a really great moment because we were all able to bring those three or four different efforts together in the same place. So since then, Black and BioM has a Twitter page and an Instagram page. And there's also a page on the NYSEP website, nysep.org slash black hyphen in hyphen NYSEP. And in the coming weeks uh, and months, we're working on a couple of different things, but we really want to provide a place for people to find mentors, particularly undergraduates and master's students and graduate students. There's a real issue with the pipeline. There's a lot of students that go in for a anthropology undergraduate degree and then never make it past that. But maybe if they had mentorship and maybe if they had people to talk to about the process, they might find support in that way. So to create a networking organization or platform, and then on top of that, also just to highlight the work of Black biological anthropologists. Additionally, so we're all aware of the Black in STEM, Black in, et cetera, that has been happening all summer. Hopefully, plan is to do something in February. What advice would you give to a student coming in, right, to anthropology or biological anthropology to improve their chances of success, maybe to avoid, I would say on one hand, maybe to avoid traps you've fallen into, but on the other hand, sometimes our experience is what it had to be, so we find where we are. But what, what would that be? And I guess part two, or maybe you can answer this one instead. How do you see this project helping those students in a tangible way? What do you want to see happen? So speaking for myself, but I think we're in agreement. I think that we'd like to see more opportunities for Black biological anthropologists to feel accepted, uh, to see themselves in the discipline, and to have opportunities to be supported in the discipline financially, professionally, and that requires that they have mentors that have been through experiences that that are unique to the experience of being a Black individual 
in biological anthropology, in academia. So I want to reinforce this for our listeners. You've created basically a directory so it's easier to find them, whereas before there was literally no way to find a mentor who looked like you if you're Black, African-American, without already knowing ahead of time where they were. Yeah, and and there's some work in the direction of strengthening that access to that information. You know, there's some ethical, tricky ethical issues around having lists of people. (laughs) So that's why my list is a reference list. Social media is the perfect platform to allow people to come together. So people can choose to be a part and people can demonstrate what they support. So Tisa, you do all the things, which is incredibly impressive, especially while still getting your graduate degree, creating this black and in bio anth, doing the anthro illustrated, which we'll definitely include a link to in our show notes because the pictures are are fabulous, but I'm very impressed by them. Uh, And you're also organizing a great big conference. And again, you're still finishing up your doctorate. So how do you manage your work-life integration? What do you do when you aren't doing all of these extra things and your graduate degree? Well, all right. <laughs> I, I will speak to that really quick, though. I want to talk about the um, Anthro Illustrated just, just You can quick, start with that if you up. want. Yeah, um, yeah. Talk about that. Go for it. Because I want to highlight that that project initiated by Liam Gleason, they got this idea to why don't we have clip art more representative clip art that we can use that is open source that's free a year ago or something like that it reached out to a bunch of us what kind of images do you want to see and we provided that feedback and then this summer over the summer Gleason contacts all of us I found an artist and let's do this and it was a a back and forth process. There's a bunch of us and I'm not even sure who else was a consultant because some people did it anonymously. But I guess specialists in our own particular field providing uh, consultation on the different imagery and, and what was appropriate or not appropriate for different imagery. And out of it came this amazing website. I just want to say there how- it's, It is beautiful. It is not what I, you know, initially was thinking like, clip art, you know, stick yeah. figures. The stick figures, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, how is it funded? I know you're a con- uh, you, you do consultations, so you might not know, but like, are the artists funded? Is this grant funded? So I would speak to Gleason about those details. Honestly, the artist had uh, asked for a certain level of uh, personal anonymity. And so while on one hand, I really want to highlight that there is a very talented artist that did this work. None of the rest of us did the actual art. I also don't want to press that too much because I don't want to, you know, violate that person's privacy. I'm always fascinated by this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it is gorgeous artwork and um, what a fantastic project. But yeah, so right now, take us in what okay. little time you might have. <laughs> Of what other things do you do with your time and your life outside of anthro and all this amazing other work you do? I'm a skadian. So this is the Society for Creative Anachronism. Mm-hmm. It is? All yeah. right. So yeah. now 
Now you have to tell me why, how this is different than say like live action role play, or is it under the umbrella? Yeah, no, of it's live not the same. It's nope. not, okay. How is it not Larf? the same? Now this so, is a, this is a carrot thing for sure right here. I mean, I LARPing, do love Ren Fairs, but. LARPing is usually, uh, first of all, the outcomes are maybe predetermined. And second of all, they have fantasy. And mm -hmm. um, the SCA is not historical recreation and it's anachronism, but it is also mm -hmm. not fantasy. They don't do, there's not supposed to be a fantasy element. It's supposed to try, attempt to be historically accurate. And so like you actually will, so when you say the outcomes are not predetermined, which means there's actual fighting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you don't and know so, who the winner's going to be. It's how many injuries happen? Or not. <laughs> injuries happen. Injuries happen. Fascinating. Uh, we are going to have to include this in the show notes as well, because other <laughs> people are going to be like, what? Uh, that is great. And Kara's going to die. I, I doubt there is anything near South Bend, Indiana. <laughs> You can come out here to Arizona in February. We have Australia War. That's much smaller than Pendic, and it's much more manageable with a grad student life. Okay, so before yes, we, me. before Karen and I go down <laughs> Google wormholes here, uh, in the middle yeah, of yeah, our Yeah, it's already happened. <laughs> Back out you, of that. <laughs> how do you integrate this into your life is the question. It's difficult. I haven't been as active since I went back to school. Honestly. So I imagine this takes some travel as well. Like it's not nearby. So how often do you actually get to participate then? I so I went to Penzik for like ten years in a row and then and then I went to Croatia. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't been to Penzik since. Okay. <laughs> but you still keep up with all of it then. Like at least online yeah. and all of the communities and things like that. Okay. This might be the coolest one we've come across, Chris. I know I feel really disappointed in myself because when you asked me this question, I said gardening. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised i expected you to be like oh yeah i'm that kind of nerd too i know with the handlebar mustache <laughs> and everything amazing yeah, amazing I'm, I'm a i'm a less interesting nerd than you <laughs> uh well tisa it has been an absolute joy having you on the show today and thank you so much for taking the time to uh to speak with us Thank you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. We didn't talk about my research as much as uh, I had hoped to, but maybe uh, another time we can do that. Yeah. We can always bring you back on. That would be great. Uh, I know it's a lot of fun. Thank you. Have a good one. All right. Thanks, you too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, bye-bye. great talking to you. Bye.